The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we are talking to Dr. Mara Hart about her book called Sex in the Sea, our intimate connection with sex-changing fish, romantic lobsters, kinky squid, and other salty erotica of the deep. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hasra. With me is Dr. Mara Hart, Director of Research for the nonprofit Future for Fish and author of Sex in the Sea. Mara, welcome to Science for the People. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. So something really interesting that you did with your book is that you divided it into sections, into three acts, according Mm -hmm. to the different stages of reproduction in marine organisms. I thought we could briefly go through each stage together, starting with Act 1, Dating Games. Yes. (laughs) Well, I was trying, when I wrote the book, there's so much great material, and there were so many different ways that you know, it could be presented in terms of by different species or by different habitats or different regions of the world. And so I thought, well, what would make for a better narrative, you know, a true story? And I thought, well, it's it's the process of getting to sex, right? (laughs) And whether you're a human or you're an animal, you know, there's certain things that have to happen. And the first is the dating and mating, right? You have to be able to find a mate. And that's the first stage that any um, animal has to go through. And in the ocean, there are particular challenges to trying to find a mate uh, because you're working in a 3D environment, right? So it's really different. When you're on land, uh, unless you're a bird, you have only two dimensions to work in. And so with the ocean, this third dimension of depth really adds some challenges. Plus you have the size. So the ocean is actually 99% of the habitable volume of the planet. So the amount of habitat that is livable by organisms, 99% of that is ocean. So these animals have huge challenges when in the marine space to try to find their mates. And they come up with all sorts of different techniques uh, to do so. Plus it's aquatic, right? So you have water versus air in terms of how they can signal and try to find one another. So that's where, that's where the book kicks off is okay. If, if you're this huge whale, you still have an enormous distance. You're still a small animal in a big pond, so to speak. And if you're a tiny little copepod, you know, a, a little crustacean the size of your thumbnail, well, then finding a mate is really, really hard <laughs> in the ocean. So, yeah, we kind of dove in there and, and started with um, some of the neat tactics that, that different species use uh, to find their mates. So once you've overcome the challenge of finding that potential mate, you have Mm -hmm. to court that mate. It seems like for many different marine species, the males have to put in the work to attract the females. Why is that? Well, it's, it is very common, um, but it's not always the case. Uh, but often what it is is that in, in nature in general, males who carry the sperm, so the male sex cell, it's, very small and it's very cheap to make. So they make a lot of it. And basically for males in, again, this is very general, but in general, they are trying to sow as many seeds as possible. So they're looking for as many mates as possible. So they're trying to attract females and, and get as many meetings to occur as they can. Whereas from the females, they're producing the eggs and an egg 
is a much more energy rich and energy expensive cell to make. And so for the female, she's a little more selective in general with who she's sharing these eggs with. And so the, the basic principle is that the females tend to be more selective and the males tend to be the ones who are running around trying to show off and attract the females. But in the ocean, this doesn't always happen. Um, there's, there's a little bit of a, a leveling of the playing field in some cases. And then we also have cases where the females are doing some of the selection. And one of my, my favorite examples of this is in lobsters which is not um, <laughs> an animal most people think about when they're thinking about romance in the sea. But lobsters are actually really kinky, and um, they also are very romantic. And in the case of the lobster, it is the female who selects the male that she thinks is the most um, sort of compatible and lures him in uh, to, to, have, um, to have her courtship. And I can, you know, I can elaborate on that if you want, if, if that sounds of interest. Yes, it definitely is. <laughs> okay. So uh, it starts off where during the season, the mating season, for, and this, these are main lobsters, so the ones with the big claws, the males do sort of compete a bit. They, they, uh, the, <laughs> the big male is kind of a bully, and he'll go around and sort of beat up other males in the neighborhood. And they basically fight over dens or shelters. Um, and so the, the biggest, toughest male will get the best um, sort of shelter area. And he maintains his sort of power over the neighborhood by peeing in on the other males. <laughs> and so he basically uses his scent to kind of mark his territory and to... Um, you know, let the other guys know, like, hey, this is this is my space. And all of that scent going out in the ocean is very attractive to the females. And it helps the females to say, okay, this is the guy. This is the one who's dominating. And um, that's the one that I'm going to want to choose to mate with. So then what the female does is, because the male's a bully to everybody, so the male will bully up uh, females as well as males mm. who come too close. So what the female has to do is she has to figure out how to sort of woo this tough guy. Um, and she has to do it in a way that will also protect herself because lobsters, the best time for them to meet is actually when the female is molting. And that's because under the female's tail is a little pouch that's called the sperm receptacle. And when the lobsters meet, this is where the sperm is deposited. And then she draws upon that sperm store to fertilize her different egg batches. And right after the female molts, that uh, old sperm receptacle gets tossed off with her old shell and she has a new one forming. And for the female, it's best to mate right away because then she can fill that sperm receptacle all the way up and she can go off and fertilize multiple batches in a row without worrying about having to mate again because her, her receptacle is full. For the male, he wants to mate with a freshly molted female because he wants an empty sperm receptacle to fill. He doesn't want to have to put his sperm in with another guy's sperm where it all mixes and, and you can have some sperm competition and not as much space for him. So they both want to mate when the female has just molted. But a freshly molted female is extremely vulnerable. She's soft-shelled. 
And for a few hours, she can't even walk. She can't even hold her own weight on her legs because she's shed her shell and has no more hard structure, right? Their skeleton is on the outside. So she's kind of just this soft blob. So it's really dangerous for her to present herself to this male and then molt when the male is this like tough bruiser who's going around bullying and beating up everybody. So what she does is she approaches the den of the dominant male and she basically squirts a whole bunch of her own pee into his home. And lobsters have their bladders above their eyes. And there's a um, little sort of spout that comes out under their eye receptacles. So right at the front of their face. And they can kind of shoot the urine forward <laughs> and, and straight out in front. So she basically faces the male, squirts him with pee in the face, and then she gets gets out of there as fast as she can. <laughs> she kind of bolts. But she does this over the course of a couple of days. And every day she goes back and douses him again and again. And eventually her urine has a love potion effect. It starts to calm the male. It sort of t- turns him into this gentle and um, welcoming lover. And so after a few days, he welcomes her into her into his den and they live together. Um, and they'll hang out for about a week. They'll hunt, they'll share the space. And then at that time when she's feeling that the molt is imminent, she does this really cool thing where she goes in front of the male and they sort of face each other. Uh, and she, she goes right in front of his face so that she is now squirting copious amounts of pee in his face and he is dousing her with his urine and he puts his big claws down in the sand and kind of bows his head in front of her. And she takes one of her big claws and touches him on each of his shoulders. So it's called knighting because it really looks like that. Mm -hmm. And it's a signal that she gives to the male that's like, you know, don't go anywhere. This is all about to happen. We're about to get it on. (laughs) Stay put. And she then goes to the back of the den and starts the molt. And he basically guards her. And make sure nobody comes in or out. He often will go over and sort of stroke her with his antenna and with his little walking legs. And then once she's molted, he goes around behind her and he will pick her up. He puts his big claws down in the sand and his tail in the sand. And those are sort of like his anchor points. And then he uses his small walking legs to lift her up and roll her over so that they're belly to belly. They're basically in the missionary position. (laughs) And um, he then mates with her. And the male has um, two modified appendages that can slot into that sperm receptacle. And he deposits the sperm. And then he very gently rolls her back down and lets her rest at the back of the den. And he will continue to guard and protect her for another few days while her new shell hardens. And then as soon as her shell hardens, she takes off. It's like, thanks. Thanks for the load. I'm out. Goes off, does her thing. He then will take the next female um, to come and who then douses him with her urine and he gets familiar with her scent and the whole process will repeat. So it's, um, it's definitely in some cases, even though the male is establishing his territory, it's the female that's sort of, um, cueing the beginning of this, this mating ritual and really working to woo the male and convince him and get him in the right, um, mindset, if you will, <laughs> for, for mating to happen. Is that the most elaborate courtship ritual you've come across in your research for your book? 
I have to say that was one of the most surprising, just mm-hmm. again, because lobsters, right? They're just, they don't look romantic, <laughs> you know, those tough shells and, um, you know, you think of them associated with a really good sushi roll <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> or, uh, you know, um, however you, you choose to have it. But there's other, there's other courtships that are elaborate in different ways. Um, I think the white spotted pufferfish, the, this is a small, um, pufferfish, no bigger really than the size of your hand. And they were only discovered, um, I would say, I think it was about two years ago now, maybe 2014. And the male makes these absolutely spectacular nests and they're sand nests, um, that look like mandalas. So they're these beautiful geometric shapes and they can be over six feet across. So you have this tiny little fish making these huge, beautifully symmetrical, really exquisite sand structures and all the channels and valleys and, and sort of um, grooves that he carves in the sand are all um, helping to keep the eggs in a central location in the middle of this giant disc. But um, the female has to basically approve of, of the structure and she'll come around and sort of um, inspect and then leave and look again and leave. And um, he decorates the tops of the ridges that he creates with little bits of shell and coral. So it, it it's really quite a process. It can take him a week to build one of these things. Mm. Um, and then if, if he's successful, he'll mate with a female. He'll guard the eggs. She takes off. He guards the eggs. And mm-hmm. this happens a lot with, with fish where the males are the ones that are left um, basically holding the basket. Uh, and then the nest just kind of, you know, um, degrades around him as he's guarding the eggs. Um, the sand gets blown away. You know, if he's not there continually maintaining it, um, it goes back to back to where it came from and just this sort of uh, sandy plain. And the next time he wants to mate, he has to go and build another nest. So it's really quite an extensive process. And you can see it. There's some wonderful YouTube video. If you look up white spotted puffer fish, um, you know, sand nest or sand mandala, um, you'll see it. And divers had been seeing these structures for years and had no idea. We could not figure out, you know, where they came from, who was making them, what they were made for. And it was just about two years ago that, um, a Japanese photographer was able to, to capture, um, the act and mm-hmm. the, the uh, architect behind it. And it's this tiny little <laughs> white, white spotted pufferfish. And I think the BBC did, um, a piece on it that you can see online. They did. So, and I've seen yeah. it. It's amazing. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean, that's pretty elaborate in terms of um, construction of a of a of a nest or a a love chamber, if you will. Definitely. So you know, you have these males that work very hard to attract females. You have individuals that work hard to attract individuals of the other sex, mm. and then you have something called a sneaker male, who's more like <laughs> an opportunist. So, can you explain how the sneaker male works? Absolutely. This is such a great, and this is why I love nature because anything and everything goes, right? There's no, um, any rule or any pattern that you see is going to have it, its exceptions. And that's what makes it exceptional and, and so much fun. So sneaker males, a great example of this are cuttlefish. Um, so cuttlefish are fantastic shapeshifters and 
camouflagers, right? So like squid and octopus, they have the ability to change the, the colors and patterns of their skin. And in certain uh, species, there are, again, these dominant males, and they sort of bully out the smaller males and guard groups of females and keep the females to themselves. So one strategy, if you are a small male, is to be a sneaker. And what they do is rather than spending energy growing big and trying to outcompete the, the alpha males, these sneaker males adopt female coloration and size. They stay small and they hold their body in the way that females hold their body when they're carrying eggs. So they really look just like females. And they kind of sort of saunter on over to the male and his, his harem of, of females um, and kind of hang out. And the, and the big male, sometimes they're so good, the big male actually tries to mate with them <laughs> because he's fooled into thinking they're a female. But the idea behind the strategy is to wait for the big male to be distracted. So he's either mating with one of his females or maybe he's in, especially engaging in a fight with another male. And while he's distracted, the, this sneaker male Basically, it's, he's basically a, a cross-dresser, <laughs> sneaks mm-hmm. in, and then quickly shifts his colors to attract the female and mate with the female, um, right, right under the nose of, mm-hmm. of the alpha male. And in some species, they're so sneaky, they will, um, they can shade half of their body different, you know, so I'm not explaining this well. So a male that's a sneaker male, will approach the female and he will flash his male colors to her, say on his right side, Mm -hmm. but he'll keep his female colors facing outward so that the other males don't know that he's there. Right. Right. (laughs) So this is like extreme deception, but it works really well. And the females tend to go for it. Sneaker males have a, have a pretty good success rate. Um, so this is for a species where there's um, an egg transfer and it's it's a more uh, sort of a pseudo internal fertilization with with cuttlefish. But in fish that release their egg and sperm externally into the water, you can also have sneaker males and they tend to just be um, really fast and really courageous. <laughs> um, they tend to have extremely large testes, much more so than the dominant males. And they just flash in and dump as much sperm as they can into the mix and then swim as fast as they can out of there before the big male can retaliate. So you can imagine you're this big male. You've spent all this energy and time growing large, defending your territory. You have these females who are part of your harem and you're doing your daily spawning ritual with them where you swim up into the water column and the male releases some sperm and the female releases some sperm and they do this little shimmy. And then all of a sudden, right as you're peeking, this small male streaks in and dumps twice as much sperm as you've just released into the mix and then books it out of there. Um, so many of the eggs from that female are then fertilized by the streaker male rather than by the, the dominant male. So again, it's an effective strategy, but it takes uh, it takes some courage <laughs> to mm-hmm. pull off. Um, but we do see it across many, many different species and kinds of animals that, that you do have these sort of alternative male um, tactics. Salmon have it, in fact. Certain salmon species 
Um, some of the males never go out to sea and never grow large. They actually just hang out at the mouth of the river and wait for whatever next group of females comes back the next season and try to try to sneak in on on the spawning. So yeah, it's pretty tricksy. <laughs> All right. Um, so you also have some marine species where individuals are born either a male or a female, and they fulfill the sexual responsibilities of that sex for the rest of their lives. And then you have some marine organisms that choose to change their sex at some point <laughs> in their lifetime. Why does this happen? What's the benefit of changing sex and how is it done? Oh, this is, this is one of the coolest things I think that we see. Um, and again, this happens in a lot of marine species. Um, oysters do it. Shrimp do it. Fish do it. So basically any shrimp you're eating is most likely a female that was born a male and has sex changed. Uh, same with oysters. Many of them, they start off as males, and then when they can, they shift into females. And so the bigger ones tend to be females, and those are the ones that we tend to harvest and eat. So we actually are more intimately familiar with sex-changing animals than we realize. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so why does this happen? Um, okay. Basically, the idea in nature and the point of, of, of surviving is to leave as many of the next generation as possible if you're an animal, right? He, mm-hmm. he or she who has the most offspring wins. That's, that really is the game. So what happens is, again, we go back to this idea that sperm are cheap and easy to manufacture energetically, eggs are not. And so if you are a species, take, let's, for example, let's think of um, what we were just talking about, some of these uh, species that have harems where you to to successfully reproduce you have to be a male who is big and strong and can either fight off other males or fight to win a territory where you can protect a group of females that you can mate with right if you are born a male and you are small you are not going to be able to mate for a very long time because you have to grow and and get bigger um, in order to, to be successful. And then once you're a certain size and a certain heft, you, you can start entering the, the dating and mating game. But this means there's many years that you're living life and not reproducing. So for those species, say it's, um, let's take parrotfish, for example. Many parrotfish, these are beautiful color, colorful tropical reef fish. Um, they are born females. And as a small female, they can mate with the big males. So they just join a harem and they're mating. They are actually releasing their eggs and having some fertilization success and having some of their, um, they have their eggs uh, be fertilized and thus lead to future potential offspring. Then once they are getting near big enough uh, to dominate a harem themselves, it helps them to shift into a male state, into the male sex, because then they can mate with multiple females and be letting loose tons and tons and tons of sperm, which can be fertilizing lots and lots and lots of eggs from multiple females, which can lead to even more offspring than any one female would ever be able to produce. So it's a numbers game. Now, what's really interesting that, that's the most common uh, shift that we see from female into male. But there are species that shift from male 
into female. And we see this, for example, in clownfish. So again, we, <laughs> we joke that Disney's Finding Nemo really, really got it wrong. Mm-hmm. Because for those species, they're, they live in the um, world of an anemone, right? So a clownfish is a brightly kind of candy-colored fish on a tropical reef that um, is very tasty and easily picked off, um, as we saw at the very beginning, as all Disney movies go, super tragic mm-hmm. um, start. But there's lots of predators on the reef looking to snack on clownfish. So they huddle up in these anemones that serve as a protective home. Well, if you're an anemone, you cannot kind of go out searching to find a mate. You're basically stuck with whatever other clownfish are in there with you. And in that case, to maximize your offspring potential, you want to make sure that you have the biggest female possible living in your space. Because the really cool thing about fish and shrimp and oysters and very unlike mammals, unlike us, is that the bigger the female, the more eggs she produces. So this is fundamentally different than what we're used to. For mammals and for for people especially, we are born, girls are born with the total number of eggs they will ever have. And that number actually goes down as they mature and as we age. But in fish, it's the opposite. The number goes up as you grow bigger and are able to have more energy and produce more eggs. So if you're stuck in an anemone, (laughs) there we go. If you're stuck in this little house (laughs) and you can't get out, for the males, the males produce more than enough sperm to fertilize any one female. So it makes sense for them to try to be with the biggest female possible so that she can produce the most eggs and therefore you're fertilizing the maximum number of eggs possible. So the female and the male live together in this pair. And in that case, it makes sense for the female to be the bigger one. So clownfish are born as males and as small males, they can mate with a larger female. And then when that larger female dies, the male then transitions and grows to be a bigger female and then mates with the next male in line, kind of the smaller males that are, that hang out in the, in the anemone with them. So it's this, again, it's just a numbers game. It's how do we maximize the amount of potential offspring we can produce? And it depends on the type of mating strategy. How it happens is a whole other, <laughs> uh, you know, explanation. Um, and it is fascinating because with these species, when we talk about sex change, it is a true internal and external change. So the gonads, the sex organs, the ovaries will dissolve and turn and grow, um, and in turn they'll grow new testes or the testes dissolve and in turn they grow new ovaries. So it's a complete changeover of the internal system and externally. Uh, the colors will change, the body shape will change, um, all, all of these types of things, which is really a unbelievably complex and, um, pretty miraculous chemical and hormonally driven um, shift that that happens um, and the the details of how are still really being worked on because it's such such an amazing process and it happens so fast in some fish the sex change can happen within a couple of days I mean it's wow. unbelievable and certainly within a few weeks so it's it really is an amazing phenomenon um, 
that that helps these animals maximize their reproductive output, maximize how many um, of the next generation they're able to, to make. Okay, uh, let's move on to the next <laughs> I'm stage. I'm sorry, I, think I can talk forever about this stuff. So <laughs> it is. It's amazing it. to listen to. <laughs> there's so much. There's so much interesting material in your book. Um, I actually want to go on to, you know, sealing the deal or more specifically the actual sexual intercourse because uh, you have a, a whole chapter dedicated to the penis and I, I want to get into that. Uh, so let's start with the different types of penises or penis. Is it penis? That's how you're supposed to pronounce a, oh, the plural know, version I, of penis. So Yeah, I've heard um, so many, so many different and, and penises does tend to be out there. I've heard peni. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's a diverse world and there are all sorts of different kinds. Um, you know, the ones we're most familiar with, again, in the marine mammals, they do not function as much as, as we're used to in the marine mammals because they are kept internal. And then when they um, are erect, they sort of come out of these slits and the penis sort of opens up. And it's it's an incredible <laughs> it's an incredible phenomenon to see because that's how they can keep themselves streamlined, right? So unlike us, they're they need to have these really smooth silhouettes, dolphins, whales, and even walruses, right? So they keep everything tucked up inside, and then when the male is is ready to um, engage, so to speak, um, the penis inflates and can can become erect very quickly and then um, is kind of released to the outside through these slits and then can enter into the female. Um, for dolphins and whales, they have the added advantage that it's a fibroelastic penis. So it's always, um, quote unquote, at half mast. So it's always almost ready to go, even tucked up inside. And it kind of just unfurls, if you will. But it allows them to get into action very quickly if they need to. Um, it also helps with the strength. And this is really important because in the water, again, if you imagine, um, you know, whales mate very similarly to us, belly to belly, um, but they have these enormous long penises that can really kind of reach around. A blue whale's penis is over 12 feet long, right? So it's this huge organ and they don't have anything hard to push against, right? There's no resistance in the water. So the penis itself has to be very um, agile. It has to be able to sort of move itself where it needs to go. And then it also has to be able to maintain shape and deal with the thrusting action um, in, a, in a watery environment. So they're really actually pretty phenomenal structures when you think of them in that way. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you have these really funky phalluses that come from deep sea squid, which are these sort of extending um, organs that we actually didn't know um, quite how extensive they could be until a few years ago. Um, but they can be almost um, equal in length to the body length of the animal. So you're talking about a penis that's as big as the animal itself. So if this was human terms and you had a six foot tall guy, you would have him unfurling a six foot long penis. Right. That's pretty, pretty amazing. And these come out of what's called the terminal organ. So again, it's inside the squid and it's where um, the sperm come out. But what they do is they, this, this organ, it, it stretches. It's a long tube and it stretches out the siphon and then externally all the way out. So it can actually reach up and around and um, <laughs> giant squid, deep sea squid have really funky, um, 
mating positions. And again, this is something that you can see. We have been able to capture a few of them um, on video. And by we, I mean scientists. Uh, and it's really, it's phenomenal. There's like weird inverted upside down 69s where the male's penis is basically arching up and over his back to insert into the female who's underneath him lying on her back. So really, really wacky. Um, but again, very flexible and uh, dynamic way to engage. Um, other great ones are the sharks. So sharks have a really unique phallus. It's called a clasper, and it's actually an extension of their pelvic fin. So it's really just like a rolled up fin, kind of like a like a taco. And they have a groove that runs down, um, and the males will insert the clasper into the females. They have in, all sharks have internal fertilization. But what's really interesting is unlike in mammals where you have a um, interior tube that runs the length of the penis so that the sperm actually come out the end of the penis, in sharks, the opening where the sperm are released is up at the base of the body. It's not at the tip of the clasper, it's up at the base. And so they then have this really cool sort of squirt gun action that they use use um, the water to flush the sperm down the clasper so that it can run into the female. And they do this, they have a tiny pore um, also at the base of the clasper where the clasper and the body join. And they can use muscular contractions to suck water in and inflate this internal sac. So um, they siphon the water in and they blow up like a balloon. And then they squeeze those muscles and shoot the water back out the pore and it goes down into the clasper and it basically kind of flushes the sperm down and into, into the female. So it's this, um, hydropowered ejaculation that's really unique. Um, but it works really well. Sharks have been around 450 million years, um, hundreds of species. So they, they figured it out, but that's a really, really cool one. Um, oh gosh. And, and then of course we have barnacles. Right. The barnacle penis is um, it's amazing. And it's the longest proportional penis in the world. It can be up to eight times the size of the owner <laughs> and um, it can change shape in some species. So it can go from this short, stout kind of stubby thing into this incredibly long, flexy thing. Um, and, you know, this it, it makes sense because barnacles um are stuck to the bottom for their entire adult life. They can't move. And so they basically use these extremely long penises to kind of reach up and out of their chambers and poke around in the tide pools trying to find a neighbor with an open open chamber that they can, you know, insert into and fertilize. Um, but if it's, you know, a really wavy environment, you don't want to have a very long, flexy um, penis that can get damaged, right? It's better to be short and stout. So in really wavy, turbulent environments, the penis can shift and become thicker and stouter. And then when the waters are calm and everything is kind of cool, they can afford to extend that out a little bit more and, and get a longer reach. So it's it's a shape-shifting penis, which is uh, pretty pretty neat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have... <laughs> I could make a terrible pun of that's just the tip of the iceberg, but th- there you go. There's many, many more examples. <laughs> right. So you have this chapter about the penis, and you also have a chapter about the inner chambers of the female. and. Yay. It seems like the inner chambers are, are working to the female's advantage, uh, specifically uh, by creating a kind of sperm bank for the female in some cases. So how does that work? 
Uh, so sperm banks are really cool. And the term inner chamber is what I use just for all of the internal structures in all of the different female species. So um, many, many females, um, whether they're sharks, uh, marine mammals, sea turtles, um, even some fish have uh, internal fertilization. So the sperm is deposited into their bodies and then um, connects with the egg. And then the egg is either released out or the um, embryo develops within the mother and then is released as um, a full-term living uh, animal. So females often don't have a lot of choice, it seems, um, when it comes to selecting a mate. Um, oftentimes males can be very forceful and forced sex is very common. And um, so what happens with these internal chambers is there seem to be structures, um, we've seen this in whales, we've seen this in um, sharks in particular, that um, can store sperm. Um, and in whales, actually, I, I shouldn't say, in whales, there's there's a different thing going on. But in sharks, they can store the sperm. And we know that this uh, from actually aquaria, where uh, female sharks have been isolated from males for years and years, and then all of a sudden they become pregnant. And it's for, due to a mating that occurred prior to them being put into the aquarium. So what happens with sperm storage is there are receptacles that are able to literally just store up sperm. And this could give the female an advantage in the sense that in one case, it allows her to mate with multiple males and store their sperm, but not necessarily use it. Um, so if she then mates with, finds another mate later who she thinks maybe is more fit, um, it's possible that she could just kind of get rid of the earlier sperm and use the more recent sperm. Or it's um, possible that in these storage vesicles that the sperm are competing. Sperm from multiple males are actually just kind of fighting it out amongst themselves. We're, we're not really sure exactly what's working here. But there's um, a lot of ways in which the potential for the most fit male to be selected by the female. And that selection, again, might be sort of passive in the sense that it's just sperm competitioning happening inside her. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a really cool way that the females are able to not necessarily have to have their eggs fertilized by every or particular males that they mate with. Uh, it also allows the female a little bit more choice in when she gets pregnant. So in many species, males and females don't live in the same area. Uh, they come together to mate certain times of year. Um, but because the female has different resource demands when she's pregnant, she needs to be often in different habitats, sometimes warmer water, water with better food supply um, than the males do. And so if she comes together with the male and mates when, when it's a good time to mate, that might not always be the best time for her to get pregnant. Um, so what will happen is these sharks, and this can happen in um, also in elephant seals and certain mammals, they'll mate, they'll store the sperm, and then they will um, sort of release the sperm and release their egg and have fertilization happen several months later or several years later when the female's body is ready and capable of carrying a pregnancy to term. So sperm, sperm storage works in, in a lot of different ways to the advantage of the female. And it's something that we're just starting to figure out. This whole world of the inner chamber and how females may be selecting their, the father of their offspring post-coitus, you know, post-sex is really a new field of study. And it's, it's very exciting because um, it's showing that things are not as black and white as we've, we've always thought in terms of who really is in control. 
We'll be back with more after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hazra, here with Dr. Mara Hart. Okay, uh, so the last act of your book is the post-climax. Um, what Ooh. do we do to make sure the sex stays alive in the sea? So this section goes into more detail about the impact humans have had on the sex lives of marine animals and what we can do to mitigate the negative effects we've caused. So what are right. some things that humans do that have a negative impact on marine reproduction? Sure. So we can pick up what, right where we were talking about, so spawning aggregations, right? So you have all these fish that come together every year at a very predictable time of year. Um, often it's in um, association with a full moon and temperature changes, so seasonal changes. This predictability is what allows the fish to know how to find each other and where to find each other and when, but it also means that fishers know where to find the fish and when, right? And you have all of the biggest adults in a tiny area of the ocean, very busy and occupied <laughs> doing their business. It's very easy to catch a lot of them. And over the course of the last uh, few decades, we have wiped out spawning aggregation after spawning aggregation. Um, Nassau grouper is a, another example of this where it is an endangered species and there's only a handful of known spawning aggregations left out of the hundreds that used to be in the Caribbean. So it's an extremely um, effective way to fish, and it's extremely detrimental um, to the population. It's very easy to fish out um, an entire population, and that can't be recovered um, because those fish now aren't reproducing, aren't creating the next generation to come back, right? So um, it's sort of like if you were a rancher and had your, you know, beef cattle out there and you went and slaughtered all the females before they got pregnant or gave birth, right? You're not going to have any more cows your next year. Um, that's basically what we do when we fish spawning aggregations is we're, we're interrupting the ability of these fish to reproduce by taking them out. And also just the activity, even if you left some of the fish, um, in place, the activity of fishing disrupts a lot of the mating rituals that need to happen in order for the spawning to occur successfully. So even just the presence of fishers, the noise of the engines, um, pulling a few males out, um, it disrupts the, the social structure and, and some of the mating patterns that need to go on, some of the behaviors that need to go on in order for the females and males to be able to spawn and sink and to spawn enough. So that's one way that we've really um, disrupted things. Um, another way is um, through pollution um, and especially um, chemicals that can go in and start messing with some of these the hormones in some of these animals. So again, when we were talking about sex change, um, fish and shrimp, oysters, all these animals are much more um, vulnerable to having their hormones really skewed because they have this flexibility. 
And so we've started to see that through certain types of pollutants, um, through hormone mimics that we have, through things like birth control pills and other toxins that are getting into the waterways, um, we're starting to see male animals, um, genetically male, that are having female parts, females with male parts. And this is happening not in a sex change fashion where it's being controlled by social cues and the right timing. Instead, it's happening in strange ways that we actually don't, we don't really know what the repercussions are going to be, but it's unlikely going to be helpful to the population to start to skew these sex ratios in the way that we do. Another way that we're influencing things negatively is through sound pollution. And this is particularly um, for um, marine mammals, but it can also um, affect fish. A lot of fish do use sound to, to find one another and to court. Um, but in marine mammals, especially whales, dolphins, sound is to them like sight is for us. Um, they use sound to communicate thousands of miles. You know, a whale off of Cape Cod may be talking to a whale down in Bermuda. Um, we've seen, seen this, um, through acoustic studies that are listening all the time to sound in the sea. And over the past several decades, with the introduction of much more shipping traffic, oil and gas exploration, uh, naval sonar exercises, we have put in so much more noise into the ocean that we've basically fogged it up. Um, so you can imagine if you, if you think of it like internet dating allows us to find mates across huge distances, right? So you no longer just have to date the boy or girl next door. You can now go online and date someone in a different country. That's how whales use sound. They can broadcast through their song enormous distances to find a mate and, um, then hone in on them. But by putting so much noise out there, We've basically shortened the distance through which they can listen and communicate effectively. So we've actually forced them back to their hometown territories um, to find a mate. And again, the likelihood of finding a suitable mate at the right time is much less if, if you're dealing with a smaller area to search. So sound pollution is, is another way. Um, and then finally is climate change. And there's a myriad different um effects that warming waters and more acidic waters, both both the result of climate change, are having on the reproductive strategies of marine animals. And um, we can talk more about that if you want, but it's um, it changes the timing of events. Again, these animals cue in very specifically to certain habitats, to certain um, temperature cues, to certain smell. Again, with think of the lobster, that urine is so important and that all depends on chemical sensing. And when you change the acidity of the water, you change the way, um, receptors, um, on, on the animals can, can handle a message. So it changes the content of the message itself and it changes the way the animal can interact with that, that chemical signal. Um, we don't know the consequence of a lot of these things, um, but we know we're changing things and, um, Mating strategies have been fine-tuned for millions and millions of years, and we're changing them very quickly. And it's likely that um, these changes are not going to be something that the animals can necessarily adapt to, um, and and that will have a, a negative consequence on their ability to reproduce. I don't want to give too much away about your book, but um, you something I have to mention is that you actually have a short erotic almost a personified story at the beginning of each chapter <laughs> in your book. 
so what made you decide to make your book her erotica? And did you do <laughs> any research to learn how to write erotic <laughs> stories? I, now that's like a trick question, right? Because if I say I didn't do research, then it makes me sound like, oh dear, what's what's going on in her head? And if I say I did do research, it makes me sound like I wouldn't have any idea how to write this stuff. So, oh my goodness. Um, no, so <laughs> I wanted to make make the book accessible. Um, so I wanted to be able to people to put themselves in that situation, even if it was just kind of the slightest little bit to really be able to say, no, really think about it in our, if this was what was happening in our world, how weird would that be? Or how fascinating would that be? Or how awkward would that be? Um, because I, I thought it would help again, draw that connection. Um, but I had to be careful. I have to say there were a couple that I wrote that were just, oh, they were just too weird. You know, it's because some of this stuff, you just don't want to go there. You actually don't want to imagine what's the human equivalent of, of this behavior mm-hmm. or the strategy. It just doesn't, doesn't work well. So, um, I definitely had some failed, <laughs> failed attempts. Um, but I did do a little bit of research. I admit, I, um, I went and looked through some, uh, I don't even know what you would call them, you know, the light romance section in bookstores and, and you know, read a little bit uh, to, to see kind of <laughs> what some of the terminology was and how some of that stuff was written, which was hilarious. Um, and it, and they, they just kind of, you know, different stories just kind of popped into my head at different times as I was actually as I was reading the science papers or interviewing the scientists and they were describing something to me. Um, you know, I, I would just try to think about like, what, what does this remind me of? Or what kind of a scenario would that, would that happen in? Um, how could I make this more accessible? Um, so yeah, that was, that was the goal. So hopefully people don't get too freaked out and that they find them humorous and, uh, don't think I'm too, too bizarre. Oh no. (laughs) I think you did an amazing job with the erotica. By the way, <laughs> I have to say it was a really it was really fun to get to kind of dive into that that um, voice for just just a little bit. <laughs> oh yeah. So your book consists of of those erotic stories, but also um, more scientific stories, story after story after story about how marine animals reproduce. Uh, so how did you do the research for this book, and how long did it take you? Oh gosh, um, I did the research by being extremely fortunate in having a great network of colleagues who are willing to talk with me and who are then willing to recommend their friends and colleagues. Um, and also through the generosity of complete stranger scientists whose papers um, I came across and who are willing to talk to me. So I am really indebted to the expertise of the dozens of scientists out there who really do the hard work day in, day out of trying to understand these behaviors and study these animals in a really difficult, um, under very difficult circumstances. You know, studying whales is hard. We barely know anything about where they go and what they're doing when they're underwater, studying deep sea squid, same thing, studying tiny little copepod. I mean, each animal has its challenge and um, being in a water environment that we cannot go into and just hang out makes it all the more challenging. So I was really lucky and I was very tenacious mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, in terms of just trying to track down folks, but I was also just extremely, extremely lucky that, that folk, people were 
um, above and beyond in terms of giving me their time and their resources. Um, but I just started with folks I knew um, in my own network and sort of branched out from there. And I really tried to ensure that I was getting a good diversity of species and strategies. So there were definitely um, concerted efforts to say, like, I, I, I've got to get some worms in here, right? I, you know, worms are a huge um, part of the animal kingdom. I don't have anything on worms. You know, how do I do that? Make sure I had crustaceans, make sure I had mammals, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I just tried to make sure I was inclusive. <laughs> and that said, um, there's so much I couldn't cover. There's so much more that keeps coming out that, you know, are just these am- amazing um, stories and, and great science being done on, on whole sets of organisms that I never got to. So um, it was it was definitely a, a challenge to figure out what to include and what not. Um, and my hope is that um, through the website and through my blog, I can continue to bring uh, new stories to the to light as as they come about. Um, but yeah, it was it was just starting with what I knew, which were corals, because um, I had done some coral uh, reproduction research, and then branching out um, through, especially through my colleagues at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Um, so many folks are from there, and then they again recommended their colleagues, and I kind of just grew out from there. Um, how long it took? Well. <laughs> That cocktail party was probably sometime around 2006, which I'm like shocked to, it's horrible. So it's 10 years ago um, that I had the idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wrote a little bit at the beginning. Um, I wrote the sex change chapter was one of the first because of that story, because of the cocktail party, right? Mm -hmm. That was the first story. Um, and then corals, but, um, I did not really, I did not pitch the book idea and did not really get into actually formally writing and, and sort of committing to say, okay, I'm actually going to do this until I'd say about 2012, um, 2011, 2012, um, so I had kind of, I had just been sort of gathering stories, you know, through the rest of grad school as I was working um, and kind of kept the idea percolating, but never really dive again. And I started the real writing in 2011, I guess it was. Um, that said, I also have had um, two kids in that time period mm-hmm. <laughs> till now. So um, and moved and changed jobs and all that. So it's, um, I, I can't say it was a concerted effort for five years, but I would say the last year and a half, certainly it was, um, a, a good solid year and a half to two years of pretty committed writing, um, while working full time, um, to get it done. Oh. Yeah. Wow. It was a labor of love. I can tell you that. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I can tell. I can see that. Okay. <laughs> Okay, Mara, uh, here's my final question for you, and I think it's a pretty significant one. So mm-hmm. you uh, call yourself the Ocean Lorax, which is also the title of your blog. Can yeah. you explain what that means? Oh, so I realize it can be interpreted in um, in a way that I didn't intend, but hopefully, hopefully this will be... Um, I can put that straight. So Lorax has always been um, one of my favorite books. I'm a huge Dr. Seuss fan. Um, and the message there being of the book being that it matters that we care and that each of us has the, the potential to make the di- to make a difference. Um, and the Lorax himself, um, the, the character that Dr. Seuss created, 
was the keeper of the healthy environment. He was the voice for those who were voiceless in nature. And when I was in grad school and when I was thinking about my career, I realized that I was a good scientist. I know how to do science, but there are a lot of really good scientists out there. There are some great scientists out there. What the oceans didn't have as much of are communicators. Mm -hmm. Um, There's not a lot of ocean Loraxes. And the oceans need to um, have a voice, too, and have somebody able to translate the science and serve as the bridge between the science and the policy, the science and education, um, science and community, science and um, uh, social justice, which is um, an area that a good friend of mine, Ayanna Johnson, is working in. Um, there are so many ways that we depend on the oceans and that, in turn, the oceans are affected by us. And I just felt that there was a missing link and that my talents and, and my, my passion was to try to figure out how I could be that bridge. How could I be a voice for the seas? Um, and so as I was thinking about that, this, this idea of the Lorax just kept coming back, um, into my mind that, um, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to try to help, um, call attention to what was going wrong and try to offer solutions for how we could write the ship. So unlike the Lorax who he didn't in Dr. Seuss's book, he wasn't able to stop the decline um, before it was too late. Uh, in that case, I'm hoping that I can. And by saying I, uh, I say that with a huge grain of salt and that I know I can't do it alone. But I'm hoping that I can be a part of a new voice for the sea that is louder and stronger and maybe a little funnier, uh, maybe a little more inspiring um, so that we can really try to create change on the scale that's needed. And it's needed on a huge scale, but it's possible. And I think that hopeful message of the book, The Lorax, um, really still reigns true. The seas are resilient. Um, I mean, just I mean, literally last week was the mass spawning of the corals on the Great Barrier Reef. And they have, the the Barrier Reef had the worst bleaching event ever recorded in history. It was, it was catastrophic. I mean, horrible, horrible. Um, so much of the reef, um, has died. And yet they spawned on. It may not be as effective. It may not be as high a success rate as we would like, but they spawned. They still had a mass spawning. It still happened. Nature is extremely tenacious. And if we cut the oceans just a little bit of slack, a little bit, it's incredible how fast they can bounce back. So that to me is what, what the ocean Lorax is about. It's about bringing a message of hope, but it's realistic at the same time. It's grounded in the science. Um, and it's hopefully a little bit humorous and um, inspiring. Mara, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. If you want to learn more about Mara Hart and her book, Sex and the Sea, you can check out her links on our website at www.scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. 
Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>